The Sarah Lawrence Theater Program works, learns, and lives on the land of the Lenape, Muncie, and Wappinger peoples. We pay respect to the ancestors past, present, and future. The Performance Lab podcast is invested in the sharing of knowledge and cultivation of curiosity between makers. We invite guest artists to lead a workshop with the MFA candidates of Sarah Lawrence College. After which, we interview them. We ask questions tailored to their individual practice, delving deeper into the how and the why of creation. Inspiration is all around us. But how do we hone in on the subjects that drive us? They share with us their tips, tricks, and sources of inspiration. Reflect on past performances and projects and keep us up to date on what is next stay tuned for the performance lab podcast hello welcome to the performance lab podcast today our guest is agnes Barinsky, and our hosts are me jeremy kadetsky and c so i feel like it would be appropriate to agnes how about you introduce yourself how would you feel about that? Like, who are who are you at this particular moment as as yourself and as someone who makes theater? What are the what are the biographical things that seem relevant this morning? Um, sure. Yes. Hello. I'm glad to be here. Glad to be talking with y'all. I am a theater artist. I guess I am sort of like hold to that over saying I'm a playwright. Although I feel like that's the spaces in which I have tended to operate. Um, but I keep dipping out of them. I'm a theater artist. I lived in New York for about 10 years, grew up in Baltimore, and I live in Los Angeles now. And I, but I keep coming back to New York because that's where I feel like artistic community is. And I have made plays with theaters that produce plays, like new plays, and I've made plays myself in various small spaces. And um, I've worked on sort of small participatory projects that are experiments in what being together and talking together and making together might look like. And I write essays and have written a young adult novel. And yeah, those are some of the pieces. That's lovely. And just to, you know, humble brag on your behalf, there is a, a show of yours at time of recording called The Trees. It's playing at Playwrights Horizons. That is wonderful. And if whenever you are receiving the audio that we are recording today, it is playing at a, at a theater near you, whether in New York or otherwise, if this reaches you 17 years from now and there's some, I don't know, fireside production happening, um, you should go see it. It's very much about all the things that Agnes was talking about in the course of her introduction of herself. Okay, great. Where should we start? Will you each do a little mini self-intro too? I feel oh, like that, we can... that would be great. I would love that. See, go first, please. Yeah, my name is... Z, uh, she, they, I am originally from Florida. I've been doing theater for a good long time, mostly by habit of circumstance, I think, more than anything else. I, these days, consider myself a performer and lighting designer, just sort of trying to really sort of create life in whatever way I can. Audiences which are not audiences. And I'm still working on how to phrase that in a way that doesn't sound like I don't know what I'm talking about. <laughs> I feel like I feel like audiences that are not audiences is a uh, is like a provocative, interesting idea. It's like a space that yeah, I but find I, exciting. I feel like I'm phrasing it in a way that feels like a cop-out. <laughs> it's like audiences that aren't audiences, but I don't know what they should be. 
I hope we get into that later. I want to, yeah, I want to unpack that a little bit because I'm curious about that too. I'm Jeremy Kadetsky. I also sort of primarily identify as a playwright, mostly because that's like the default way that I make things. Like if someone told me that I needed to like make something in like a very short amount of time, I would like begin writing and I'm like very language sensitive and like engaging with making performance through text is just sort of like a natural way of doing things. But I also am a media designer and I make sort of like what I call like media plays, like plays without text in which the language and syntax are sort of like the interfacing of intermediality using a lot of projections and I'm making this bizarre piece now with like live guitar looping. I don't know, just really going wild. And it's something that I also am a big fan of is um, engaging with found text and making sort of using things that already exist, whether it's like the text of like a book or the text of my body or like the text of like other other things, like expanding idea of what text is and working with all of that. So that's what I do. I'm originally from Chicago uh, in undergrad, a bunch of old guys try to teach me to write like Faulkner, which they succeeded at. And I've been trying to like deconstruct that for a while. Um, and I'm here in South Yonkers, or as I called on my residency applications, the Bronx. And both Z and I are um, MFAs at uh, the second year cohort at Sarah Lawrence um, and um, fitfully trying to hold on to the things that we think of ourselves as artists during like a turbulent time, I think is, um, is relevant too. Uh, great. Thank you for suggesting that, Agnes. I guess I think that there's like two, Z and I prepared, and I feel like there's two threads that we kind of want to get to. And one of them is the making together that's that you, as you named it, Agnes, or the um, audiences that aren't audiences that you were talking about, Z. And then the other thing is like my like very like nerdy text based, like I have Agnes was very kind and provided me with the text of the trees, which I have in front of me. And um, I am a huge um, front matter fan, which for um, non-playwrights is like the stuff that comes before the text. And I also love what I describe as unseen language of a play. So like, it's not dialogue and it's not like movement-based stage directions. Like it's not something that would ever be conveyed in an actual production. So I want to talk about that. But I would love to start, Z, with your idea of like audiences that aren't audiences and um, a little bit about, you know, making community and such um, and the ways in which Agnes's work does that. So Z, take it away. Yeah, I will sort of preface uh, my uh, questions and engagement by saying, uh, especially in this moment of my life of grad school, I uh, struggle as a reader. So most of my sort of experience comes from experiencing your pieces and sort of getting to see the trees last weekend, which uh, I spoke to you about and getting to see Song of Songs at the Bushwick Star in 2021-2022, which we also uh, had the opportunity to sort of speak about. And something that I experienced a lot in both of those shows was the sort of breakdown of audience as sort of a a passive block and also the sort of very prevalent love and tenderness and sort of 
enveloping. It does sort of feel like a hug in many ways uh, that you uh, sort of bring to audience association. And so, yeah, I wanted to uh, sort of broach by asking how do you, I guess, perceive your audience while creating a show? Like what is what is your ideal audience? How are you wanting to sort of create relationships with them? Um, both sort of literally you and also the extension of you that is the, the work that you may or may not wind up performing in um, as it goes on wherever it goes on. Thank you for that generous question. And I, there's so much there to unpack because I think like one version of the answer is I don't know. I feel like that's like a big question for me of what that relationship might be. It just feels like there's so many possibilities in that. And I feel like I keep trying different, which ways of situating that relationship and and seeing which ones work. I mean, like, no, I, I think there's like, I think that in some ways the word, the word that I do feel like I understand better is than audience is context. And that like, I do feel like I, I always want to be making in specific, almost like site specific relationship to the context in which a piece is happening. And so like the, there was this participatory element just to sort of, you know, the Z obviously, but like there was participatory element at Song of Songs that asked people to write the names of someone that they had lost and bring them and put them on this central sort of altar space in the, in the play. And it was, they were sort of seated in a certain way and built up in a certain way over the course of the piece. But I think there was like an emotional leap that, that asked people to make. And I think some people were down to do that and other people are not. And I sometimes am in the theater, the person who's like, don't ask me to do a, like I came here to sort of witness something else. And I think that the wager for me that allowed that to be possible, one was the context in which we were making, which is the building of El Puente, which A, was an old church and B, when you walk into this room, you can feel the 40 years of organizing and justice work that's rooted in love that happened in this space. There's a certain like, to me, there's a certain like awe and humility that it comes with walking into that space. And I just think that that ask of audiences is something that's maybe possible in that space in a way that's not possible in Lincoln Center or, you know, even like the kitchen or like a, a downtown space that maybe. I do feel like the thing that I wanted to build into that structurally was an ability to have that moment privately and that your emotional engagement or disengagement with that activity was something that wasn't revealed to the other audience members as it's happening. I think that that's like, I mean, this is, I don't think that my work is at all like Taylor Max at all, but there's something that Judy says about like everything you're feeling is appropriate often in their work, which I think is so deeply important. And to give that sort of affective agency and space to audiences in an experience. I do think that like in moments where I'm as an audience member asked to perform joy or enthusiasm or sadness or something in a way that feels coercive, that's when I get very resistant. So I do think that like my, in terms of thinking about explicit participation, my, my, tendency is to think in terms of like task-based participations like with this show I worked on a couple of years ago at University Settlement we talked a little bit about with Lisa weird classrooms there was participation but it was very much like I need to do this task I need to make this soup will you help me cut these carrots where you're not asking someone like come up on stage and tell us about your grandmother there's there's this sort of like ability to defer to keep affective engagement in the private space. So I don't know. I think it's that question of how do you challenge people or sort of like find other routes into engaging differently in a space 
while also preserving that autonomy and privacy of affective engagement. That feels like the thing that I'm, and I feel like that's tied to context, again, tied to context, like the context of Larry's Rises of the Trees is just, you can't engage in that way. But this question of like ideal audience, I just don't know. I just, or maybe I, I guess my answer is like, I don't know if I believe in ideal audiences. I believe in actual audiences and living audiences and people who are there and whoever wants to show up. That feels to me like, the seed of the radical premise of theater is that like whatever is in the room, whatever, whoever shows up, we can make something there. So it's, in that sense, it's very scrappy. And in that sense, it's like very, also very sort of straightforward in a certain way. I don't know. There's much, I think there's more to say about that. I'm curious to hear you unpack that phrase, audiences who aren't audiences, but those are my initial thoughts on that front. Yeah. As I sort of mentioned earlier, that's that is, I think, still a phrase that I myself am, am trying to unpack. Um, I suppose when I think about it within the context of like the work that uh, like I try to make, it is acknowledging that even if we sort of strip back the sort of like conceits of theater and it's not like I am George Washington today because that's the character in the script. Um, and it is sort of just very much like this is me and this is my life. Even I, I feel like even when we do try to do that, there is still some sort of structure of it that is these people are here to largely sort of watch. Um, and, you know, some people are, and, you know, they're, performances like immersive and in, in build as interactive theater that people sort of like seek out but the sort of like standard is uh, I can engage through these sort of more removed aspects but I'm not the theater I'm I'm here I'm here to watch the theater and I think trying to remove that and like acknowledge that like if I'm talking about me as a person, then I'm talking to you as a person. And especially with sort of especially personal um, or more intimate subject matters, as I feel like love and community feel very central in the work of yours that I've I've had the ability to experience. Like those feel like something that you can't or perhaps shouldn't is, is a better word, but even then, like, talk about as much as sort of talk to and talk with and, and sort of, like, actively engage with. So, yeah, aud audience to me feels like a very sort of passive term, which I guess is the thing that I, I try to or aim to deconstruct in, in that audiences who are not audiences phrase. Well, and that's, I mean, that makes so much sense to me because it's also always already, it is, it's framed as neutral and passive. And also it's always already not neutral and not passive. And then I just think about like, and so all of which would say, so like thinking about these things is, is how we make them liberatory or, or, or more complicated. Like I, there's in, in queer performance, there's a very particular relationship to being witness and being seen. And there's a way in which that's legible and becomes illegible and is read as, is read as complex or read as frivolous and empty by different perceivers. And like, you know, I, I just, I've been reading Scenes of Subjection, which I had never read before, Sadia Hartman's book and talking about the difference between witnessing and like to be, to be a spectator and to be a witness and just like how 
like representation of black bodies on stage brings a, a whole set of like implicit violences of audience nature, just as like queer people on stage brings with it a whole set of implicit assumptions about who's, who's watching and how. So like, there's no, there's no audience that is neutral and there's no audience that is passive and those contexts are so, so inform how we watch. And so like, I feel like this investigation you're talking about, like how to, how to make that explicit and incorporate that into what it is that we're making, not in a coercive way and not in an overdetermined way, because I think that that's like the thing is we can't control how we're watched. And I don't want to be in a world where I'm dictated to as an audience about how to be in relationship to the piece, but like just thinking about what we're doing and how it can nudge and subvert and sort of tweak those structures of watching based on the bodies that are on stage is like, does feel like where the work is in some ways. I feel like um, something you said, Agnes, about the relationship of affect to engagement. I feel like something in there, there's like some like between those two ideas and like figuring out like what is the balance and like how can I engage without asking too much. I feel like kind of baking that into the cake is going to make sure that the relationship between performer and audience is going to be intentional in a way that will kind of carry through with what, what, what you're talking about and what he's talking about. And like, that was a very, that was an, an idea that really stuck for me. Well, and it's not, and I really am just sort of like rambling on this, but I feel like this is feels like tender <laughs> so much, but like there is something in the texture of what's on stage too, that, that charges that. And like, I feel it feels so important to me that it's always possible to laugh at any moment in a performance. And that if you're making a performance where someone laughing would ruin, would embarrass everybody in the room, then like we're setting ourselves up for disaster. And I just think that that's like, for me, that's like how queer language works is that on stage utterances of emotion are both deeply serious and completely ridiculous. And then that to write language and to create performance in which both of those things are possible is a way of creating autonomy for an audience and I think it's also wildly destabilizing. And that's why I think that kind of writing gets read as supercilious or trivial or insincere when actually it's like full of both of like violence and sweetness of like hurt and joke. And so I think that that's that space of like being able to laugh and also being so moved is the thing that is like, I find destabilizing and, and relieving and like a, an opportunity to discharge grief in a way that's like helpful and not maybe as direct as saying like, let's discharge our grief. Or like as manipulative toward an audience. Yeah. I think we've all been in theater pieces where you can feel like you're being like told to feel something and it's like being dredged out of you. And it's not only is it exhausting, it's terrible. I feel like this is, a, first of all, I wanted to ask if there is, aside from seeking out your work, if there is a theater artist or essayist or prose writer or someone who you feel like really nails that antinomy of um, something that is emotional and very serious and also ridiculous and very funny. Someone who like really like gets at that little granular center. I mean, I think that that, I mean, I think everybody does it in different ways. I think, I mean, this is just me now talking about, I mean, I was thinking about Tina Satter's work because mm -hmm. I was with her. I'm also thinking about like 
gosh, I mean, now I'm just like all who are the writers I love, which could be like an endless list, but I think, um, well, okay, I guess maybe just framing it more broadly in terms of destabilizing mm-hmm. how we're able to exist in relationship to language. I feel like I think about Philip Howes's writing, Diamond Mubashir's writing, Kristen Cousins's writing, Claire Barron's writing. Yeah, I, whilst, I feel like I could go on a list of like people I love, but those are some of the people who I think of first day, like people who are destabilizing. But I think Tina's definitely in that space too. Yeah. yeah. Okay, thank you. That's great. I'm a sucker for a sidebar, so I just can't help myself. I think that that um, where the conversation is trending is an excellent transition. Talking about like like the what I think of as like the preconditions of a theater piece that like will affect not only how it's perceived but also how it's like manifested on stage. We're talking about in a specific context. I now I'm going to lead us to talk about it very generally. And this is like kind of something that I'm, I'm very interested in. And this also jives with the idea of the impossible play, which Agnes, you brought up in um, the events that you were at on campus this week. And it's an idea that I really like. I received it through Sybil Kempson, who is a product of the Brooklyn Playwriting MFA. We're also a product of the Brooklyn Playwriting MFA. So that's kind of like the hinter of all of this conversation. And since our time is so brief, I'll just let that idea exist for now. And we can kind of like use that as context as we talk about things that are fun. So I really want to read the character page for the trees. Okay. There's so much good stuff in this. All right. The family. Sheila, 35, Black, David's sister. David, 37, White, Sheila's brother. Grandmother, their grandmother, old, Polish. Ezra, seven. Their familiars, Charlotte, 35. Jarrett, 34. Norman, 64. Saul, 36. The Twinks, Julian, 19. Tavish, 20. The business people, Terry. The Shul sisterhood, Cheryl. So I love this for like nine reasons. It's so simple. It's just a list on a page that's organized in a specific way. But I feel like as someone who hadn't even seen the show, if I just happened upon this text and I picked it up, I have an idea of what what is coming, who these people are, how they relate to each other, what the show will look like, what the show will feel like. And to me, that's like the magic of making performance text is like finding space to do that that is totally organic to writing and to theater making and to being a human. And it's not like the Eugene O'Neill, like you will walk seven paces and then stop and then turn and there will be a chair and a coffee mug. that's approximately this large, or even like the Robert Wilson, like your finger must lift two inches kind of thing. So with this as, as model, would you mind talking for a little bit, Agnes, about like when you're approaching like, the content that's around what people think of as playwriting, which I think people more think of dialogue. Like what is your approach to creating that language? And um, also like, how do you feel about this, this character list that I'm like obsessed with that you probably wrote what like years, like years ago. And I don't know, tell me it all, tell everything. Well, speaking of, I mean, just to speak of the two inches and the finger and the control. I did write a, a play that, Mac Wellman's feedback on was that because there were like there were 
parentheticals about how many seconds there were different pauses should be. It was like 13, 6, 2, 9, 24. Uh, and Mac was like, that's too controlling. That's too controlling. I was like, I think it's important for this play. So I don't know about this question of control. I think sometimes like that kind of excessive control in kind of a kinky way can be exciting and the character list, I mean, I guess I, I don't know. I came up like making a lot of Shakespeare plays, which I have an ambivalent relationship to now, but I do feel like there's something about that's that's that feels sort of like the court, the the townspeople, like there's that sort of stateliness. Like I think I was interested in sort of, a, a, you know, like performing a little bit of stateliness in the structure of this play with four acts and everything. And And it does happen that there were like, originally there were, in the course of reworking the play, um, two Shul sisters and when one twink got cut. So there were sort of like those communities and populations were sort of units in which I was thinking of the thing. I think I think about it. I mean, I, I like, I think it's a, it feels like a precarious thing to sort of fetishize the tech. Well, not fetishize. Like, what do I think? Listen, about you were talking about, you were talking about kinky control. I'm going to be kinky about my text, you know? Yes, no, it's true. And I feel <laughs> it's like, it's also like, how do you build, I don't know. I feel like my feelings about text as written text changes with every project and every 15 minutes. But I do think that there's with any piece of writing, like there's a relationship that happens on that page of, of like consent and respect. And so what does it mean to articulate those terms with a reader as they enter the space? Like, I just feel like it's almost like having somebody over in your house and deciding one, like is the first room of the house, like the big, drawing room is it the mud room is it like do you walk to the bathroom first or like how do you want to orient people to the space um and make them feel in that space and so it does feel like that's kind of the relationship that's being set up with any of these choices that's great i love that thank you thank you for sharing how you're feeling in this 15 minutes about uh about text see i'm going to defer to you before i i totally plunder away our time together yeah, actually, that last sort of analogy, I feel like leans into another thing that I really wanted to talk about, um, sort of describing the text as spaces. I did not ever study English literature, but I had so many friends and loved ones who did, and they all loved uh, the Gothic. So that, that tends to be like the, the first sort of like perspective that when I actually think about something. I go through and something that I felt very strongly was the presence of of non-person characters which I'm going to name in in Song of Songs the the show sort of opens with this ritual of of inviting the audience to sort of construct in this sort of altar or shrine and then, as you mentioned earlier, the sort of centerpiece that sort of descends upon us and, and we sort of collaboratively built over the course of uh, what appeared to be the run of the show. Um, but also very much in the trees, the the park feels, and especially textually, like the park that all of our characters are, are in feels very much alive and sort of cooperative as part of this community and, and family that is being built over the, the seven years of the play. And uh, especially sort of given your most recent words, 
spoken to us. I'm curious about, and, and also sort of how you having spoken earlier about the sort of nearly site-specific context with which you sort of create in mind. What, yeah, what, what, what are the rules of, of places and the non-human that you, if you have sort of intention uh, in, in those specifically? And what that may be. Fine, because this, I think it's a really rich question. I do feel like there's something about, and there's a danger of saying this because when you speak these things, they become kind of like idols and then you become guilty of idol worship. But I think that there's something about any of any art that has a liberatory intent that requires just like expanding the frame of vision just a little bit, like even if it's just two inches or even to make it not a sort of visual spatial metaphor while this is still spatial, taking a step back or something like there's just something that's like, how can you include more than what you think is possible to include? And I think that that sort of is like, has been a maneuver that for me has felt like how I keep myself on my toes is like, what am I not, what am I excluding without thinking about it from the space of what this work is and how to incorporate more of it? And there's like a version of saying that that feels kind of colonial. And there's a version of that that feels like an honoring of sacredness. Like how do you, I mean, there's like in Judaism, there's this idea that the Sabbath is like this taste of paradise that exists in this one day of the week. And but that also we're trying to bring that into the rest of the days of the week. So there's this clear sense of distinction, but also, and it's funny because holiness is defined as a being about distinction and separateness, but also ultimately everything is holy and that's how we're trying to see the world. So there's like this dance I think of in making, you have to sort of name something, you have to create a frame for it to become visible, but also like, how do you see it as not separate and removed from the rest of the fabric of reality? Um, so I think that that for me, like thinking about the place, thinking about non-human elements, thinking about um, like forms of participation and voices outside of the realm of what we're taught to think of as being at stake, that feels like part of what that work is. Yeah, I don't know. I feel like there's a lot else to say about that, but I I feel like if I, if I keep trying to ramble, I'm gonna like drift off into the sky over Columbus Avenue. It's a lovely day to drift off into the sky. So I might, I might be game for that, especially apropos of what we're talking about um, as our, as our sound check of uh, being able to get away with anything because this is an audio medium. So maybe you are drifting off in the sky. I see you going. Speaking of non-human presence, I feel like this is only slightly a bit of a shoehorn to talk a little bit about God as it were, or the divine or sort of like the Hebraic, the interesting ways in which Judaic law seems to be functioning in, at the, especially the trees where there's like a specific piece of text that's used. Um, and before I get there, I, I wanted to, I, I've been, this has been on my list to, to share with you all week. I'm a very small selection of human being who both lives in this area, has the ability to go to theater and is a Jewish currents reader. Um, so first of all, there's a, a rabbi who is a character in the trees and to announce his presence, um, when he enters, he's carrying a Jewish currents tote bag, which is like a Jewish left publication. 
for those who don't know. And first of all, I was tickled and delighted when that happened. And I said, I know what kind of rabbi this guy is. And then um, further, Jewish Currents has this lovely newsletter that they call Shabbat Reading that they send out every Friday. That's like things to meet yourself. And the trees was a Shabbat reading item. And it was also listed that there was a Jewish Currents tote bag in the show. So I love that like full circle. Did you know about this? I did. I saw that and I was like deeply shook by that and deeply uh-huh. like happy that this sort of circle made its completion. Yeah. Beautiful. I love that. So I guess I don't, uh, maybe just to be really specific, I also, and like to name it as well, like I also am current, like actively writing a play using rabbinic text and I'm like a very bookish little Jew. And therefore I'm like very into like the weird sort of way in which Jewish law is like defined through commentary and like discourse and dialogue. So that's like part of what leads me to ask and and be excited by um, this vein of questioning. But yeah, so if you just talk a little bit about the Midrash that that, um, comes up in Act 4 of The Trees and like the way that that interfaces with the play, with your inspiration, and also like you can, and you can, you can zigzag any way you want from that starting point. No, I mean, I think that, I do feel like there's something about the freedom of the midrashic form that feels has felt really important to me, especially in the last few years of writing that like, there is this whole rabbinic tradition that is so like deeply baked into what rabbinic Judaism is, which is to say Judaism since 70 CE that is about reading against a text, reading in relationship to a text, but reading against it and complicating it and undermining it while also as a way of honoring it. And so I think that that's that kind of freedom in relationship to a tradition feels like part of what the gift of what I feel like I've inherited and I'm sort of now like learning how to do something with. I feel like there's something, I mean, there are just these other ways of, I mean, here, I guess I, I guess I am like, I keep talking about this because I do feel like I'm like deeply inspired by the black intellectual tradition in this regard of like, how do you, how do you find in a tradition an alternate way of knowing and an alternate way of being in the world? And so I feel like part of my curiosity, my project is to figure out how like I, we, other like queers and Jews can un- unpack what is in the texts and the tradition we inherit that, that has a liberatory potential and how to sort of like shake off the ways of knowing that are that we all sort of like exist under uh, in capitalism. So like that to me feels like part of what the work is, is how to, how to sort of like see what's already there as, as a thing that's actually quite strange and hostile to the frameworks we have and use that and bring that into life, which is like allows it to be not a thing that we're doing and not a heavy lift we're making, but just sort of like a, a thing we're doing, a lift we're making in relationship to ancestry and, and so on. So that's a general answer, but I just love the answer. Yeah, I could go off forever on on specific texts and things like that. And that that there's that it's um I think it's like Deuteronomy nineteen twenty or something like that. That's the line that's quoted in Act Four mm-hmm. of the Creed. But and that feels like one contact point for that text play. But I it's been interesting. People friends have been sending me other like there's a line of Psalm someone sent me. There's a line from something else. They're just sort of like it's like that's 
that feels like almost like a side door, one access point to me um, and point of professional reference, but there are others, I would say. Thank you for sharing that. It's hard, it's hard to talk about. I think one thing that I really am enjoying in my current experience with rabbinic text is how incredibly specific, like how granular the points of concern are and something that I am often overwhelmed anytime I'm trying to make any kind of art is wanting to be <clears throat> wanting to destabilize, wanting to be liberatory, wanting to, you know, I really like the phrase that you use, Agnes, like move the frame of vision two inches wider. Like that's like very much like, that's like a wonderful, like reason for doing this and like operating procedure. But sometimes when you sit down or you, you, you know, what, and then whatever way you make theater, it's like, how am I going to do this? And um, the rabbinic text, like I was, I've been reading the Talmud, which is like a very secular Jew. It's like a bagel Jew is very hard. And it's like, they're just talking about this very specific garment. And like, what about the garment belies ownership? And that's like, first of all, it's so strange. And then further, it's just so specific. And like the trees, I did a little Googling around and like, like olive trees have different rules than non-fruit bearing trees, which have different rules than like whatever the fruits are. And just like that is like an access point. And then writing against the text is like, I don't know. It just feels like something that something feels like tackable or achievable in a way that like broader liberation is not. So that's my own, my own experience with the thing. My mouth is open with a sort of like rant about theology of revelation and how it relates to revolutionary work. But I, I want to like, maybe that's for another time. <laughs> But your mouth was open. It came pouring out. I saw it come pouring out. The Possibly. words, yeah, it was like a, it was like a phosphorus cloud that came pouring out of you, and it was full of meaning. And those of us who were able to witness it really appreciated what came there out. Uh, it's come time to wrap up. Any, any like quick questions? Z, you got a hot take? Yeah, I mean, we didn't quite touch on it, but I also, I want to sort of raise uh, something that we spoke about on, on Tuesday during uh, during the grad lab that ended uh, at 7.43 a.m. yesterday. The sort of role, and we've sort of touched on it bits and pieces here and there, I think, but um, the act of, that approach to our audiences with the sort of tenderness and and love and warmth versus other sort of perhaps more commonly negatively connotated emotions to send towards our audiences. These things of rage, accountability, perhaps, although, you know, perhaps not. And, and that, yeah, I feel like we've, we've sort of like talked around it bits and pieces here and there, but I wanted to sort of like, that was, that was the only other thing I wanted to raise, but it's certainly not a, a, a quickie. I don't think. <laughs> <laughs> that question of like love and tenderness versus or in relationship to these other questions of rage and accountability. Yeah. I suppose the, the, the role of addressing these different emotions to our audience and like, 
when one may be more appropriate or when, you know, the, the, the validity, the usefulness, the, frankly, the, the joy and excitement, uh, that may even come from like, I am angry. I want this acknowledged and I, I would like to share this and acknowledge this with you. And perhaps even saying, I am angry with some of you in my audience, even. Yeah, that's a whole, I mean, that's <laughs> the first thing to mind. One is, and I was sort of like wrapping up here, but the two thoughts that I just sort of like want to place on the table in relationship to what you've just offered, which I think is really beautiful. One is that like, again, to come back to this Talmudic tradition, there are so many different rabbis in the Talmud and some of them are assholes and sort of severe and some of them are sweet and dopey. And to me, that is like a reminder that all these ways of being are legit and necessary and valuable. And so like, and just that I feel like I have, I'm sort of like working out that I feel like my work often gets read as sort of like sweet. And I, I, feel like there's so much anger in what I write and maybe that's sort of my like personal problem is that like I just I like try to speak German and like um chicken clocks come out of my mouth or something like it just is like okay I guess that's what my body does but I on a better day it's like no I feel like excited when anger comes out in a destabilized way or that some people hear it and some don't and that 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 like intimacy and particularity of hearing is actually what creates intimacy and not some sort of like universal since such a thing doesn't exist presumption of speech and hearing that there's no such thing. And so like when we can embrace that instability of speaking and hearing and that particularity, then, then we're able to create some, some kind of real intimacy and, and relationship. What a beautiful sentiment to end on. What a great, I feel like in my own work, just be vulnerable. People always think it's just like funny. I was just like, man, this is funny. I was like, but did you like, are we seeing the contents of the humor? You know, Um, it is, is, especially talking about audience, it's challenging to like, think about like what, what is going to be the, the effective, affective um, result of what you're making. Cause like, you feel it so deeply. I think all of us from the work that I've perceived of the three of us, like feel very deeply what we're trying to do. And like, are trying to release that into the world with like a specific aim and a specific goal in mind. So it can be difficult to someone say, Oh, that was so sweet. Or like, man, a lot of laughs. Yeah. But we try. Yeah. And that's why it's nice to be all in a dance with each other. Mm -hmm. And and all in a dance with each other. We were uh, in this, uh, in this space as well. Thank you so much, Agnes, for joining us this morning. Thank you so much for your presence this week and your generosity and the spirit that you brought to um, our little cohort on Tuesday. I think it was very much needed. It was the right, it was the the right nectar at the right time for us. So that was very much appreciated. And thank you for your work. For those who, whenever and however this finds you, the trees may still be at Playwrights Horizons or it might be at some space near you or you can maybe it'll be published and you can pick it up and read it outside with a group of friends which sounds like a lovely way to experience this show as well in a park currently in this moment in time march 9th at 9 53 a.m there is a play of agnes's that is published called brief chronicle books six through eight it's published by three whole press they're lovely they shipped to me incredibly quickly which is astonishing. And the book is beautiful. It's a lovely sort of teal color. 
and there are in fact three holes and it would be a delightful read if you'd like to bring Agnes's practice into your home. Thank you for having this conversation. It was so nice to talk with y'all, bringing yourselves in these like deeply generous engagement with things that I care about and love. And I'm, yeah, to be continued. Thank you. The Performance Lab podcast was brought to you by Contemporary Performance Network. In association with the Sarah Lawrence College Theater MFA program. For more information, please visit our websites at www.contemporaryperformance.com or www.slctheater.com.